Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with your hosts Ben and Burke.、Uh, wow, what a special treat we have for you folks this week. Our guest is an American movie and TV producer. He's the author of numerous novels and non fiction books. And also has a PhD in comparative literature from Yale University. He has a very impressive man. He's had nearly 50 years' experience in publishing and 25 years in the entertainment business. He has produced over 30 movies, including the Emmy nominated The Kennedy Detail, The Meg, starring Jason Statham, Eraser with Aaron Eckhart. And Life or Something Like It, starring Angelina Jolie, just to name a few. And recently, he has written a Japanese English phrasebook to help English speakers communicate with their Japanese family members and friends. We were so honored to have such an impressive and knowledgeable guest on the podcast. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Ken Achity. 1,2,3 So, are you guys really in Sapporo? Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, have,、uh, we have a little bit of snow. Um, in the last couple of days, not too much yet, but the, the winter season is pretty much just started. But、uh, by Christmas time, usually the whole city is covered in snow. Yeah, I've seen pictures of Sapporo in the snow. And we have,、uh, my wife has a cabin in Nagano, which、oh, is beautiful、nice. in the wintertime, too. Yes, for sure. The Olympics and everything. Been down there a couple、yeah. times.、Um, to be honest, the more we learned about you as we. Prepared for this episode.、Uh, there were more and more interesting things that we discovered about your life. And、uh, before we do talk about your book, Japanese In Law, and your career in academia and as a writer,、uh, we'd like to briefly share with our listeners、uh, that you're extensively involved in entertainment as well.、Uh, I think I read that you've produced over 30 movies and maybe done over 200 deals in Hollywood or something like that. And, yeah, that's,、uh, that's, that's about right. And even、uh, one of your recent projects that you helped bring to the screen after many, many years was the sci fi thriller The Meg, starring Jason、uh, Statham. And、yep. uh, some of your other projects、uh, also included actors like Angelina Jolie and Betty White and Maggie Jalellen Hall and、uh, Tim Allen, just to name a few. <laughs> and、uh, could you tell us more about?、Uh, I mean, you were briefly mentioning it just now, but the importance of stories to you,、uh, how you got involved in that industry, and about Atchity Entertainment International? Well, stories have I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. I guess I come from a long line of storytellers on both sides of my family. I'm half Lebanese and half Cajun. And、uh, the Cajun side were telling jokes all the time and spinning, fishing, and hunting tales. And I used to listen in on the front porch to my uncles telling stories. And I noticed that storytelling was a craft right away because when one uncle was telling the stories, everybody in the whole Family would end up coming to the porch, bringing him coffee or you know, beer or whatever, and listening. And、uh, when another uncle started to tell a story, you know, five minutes into it, this porch would be empty. 
uh, because he was the worst storyteller. <laughs> and so I started watching, you know, what made a ter- bad storyteller and what made a good one um, when I was a kid. And I went on to be, an, you know, a writer, an editor, a publisher, uh, and then a professor of creative writing for years and um, teaching the structure of stories and studied classical Greek so I could read Aristotle's Poetics, and which was the first book about storytelling. He was kind of the Robert McKee of his time. And, uh, you know, my whole life I've been on every side of storytelling. As a professor, I help people write their stories and then help people get their stories published. And we find stories, we develop stories, we edit stories, we get stories published. We either even publish them ourselves if we have to. And uh, we also then take them out to Hollywood and sell them and produce them. Right now, we're in casting with the story that, uh, with the script that I wrote based on a story by a client of mine, and uh, we just added Mickey Rourke to the cast, and very excited about that. So, there isn't a side of storytelling that I haven't dealt with in the last, you know, thirty-five, forty years of my storytelling career. Um, it's what gives me the greatest joy in life. I always say that, you know, the universe is not made of atoms; it's made of stories. Uh, that's the one we live in. It's like somebody arrived, you know, from Mars or from, you know, one of the planets of Andromeda. The first question they want to ask is, what is your story? And and we would be asking that person the same story, the same question. And when you think about it in a court of law, the jury is listening carefully to which attorney's story they believe. And that's what they end up voting on. Uh, if you're trying to buy a car, you're listening to the salesman's story. If you're trying to decide who to vote for, you're listening to the two candidates' stories. Uh, if you're on a first date, you're walking away going, I just don't buy her story. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, or she's like, I don't buy that guy's story. Uh, so when you think about it, everything we do has got to do with stories. And when I was a professor at, at the University of Bologna one year, one of my Italian professors started to tell me uh, something that his wife did yesterday, and he started to generalize what she did that had got him so upset. And he said, you know, forget the generalization. Let me just tell you the story. And then he interrupted himself. because He said, because isn't life just a story after all? And I thought about that. And the truth is we get stories right away. We don't often get logical discourse. We don't often get, you know, careful argumentation. You know, we don't often get mathematics, which is another way of storytelling, but we do get a clear story, a dramatic story. So I just started at a relatively young age studying how stories are put together and uh, helping people do that. I think I've got five or six books of my own on storytelling. And um, I published over 20 books of my own and uh, hundreds and hundreds of poems and book reviews. I used to be a lead book review for the Los Angeles Times book review. So, yeah, I, I've had an exciting life in the world of stories, the story marketplace, they call it. Ken, what is the, what's your process when writing a book? Because not many people can even manage to write one book, but you've written, like you said, 20 books. And is it is it a 
difficult process. It seems like for you, it's quite simple. But you know, I have friends that、uh, are writers. N- none of them are published yet, but as, as a hobby, they they write books. One friend writes、uh, movie scripts. But he's never had anything that's kind of taken off. So I'm wondering, like, you know, what's what's some advice you can give to them to to help them kind of maybe take it to to the next level? Well, those are two different questions. And the second question, I'll be happy to answer first, which is that first of all, never give up、uh, and never stop learning about the marketplace you're trying to sell to.、Uh, when you stop learning and Saying, "Oh, I don't do that part. I don't understand the marketing." That's just a sign of somebody who's not completely committed to success.、Uh, my favorite client is is either a client who knows a lot about the market that he or she is trying to get into, or who wants to learn and who is, edu- you know, educatable,、uh, and, and who remembers things that you tell them and gets smarter and smarter about it because. Show business, as I say in one of my recent books, is, is a business. It's not just the show part. You know, the show part is the part that everybody falls in love with and gets excited about. But the ma- thing that makes it work is the business side. So、um, the business of show business is something that every writer who wants to be in it needs to learn.、Uh, and, and and as far as the first question goes, like. How do I do it? How, what's my process? I have a rule that I discovered by mistake, you know, by accident years ago, probably when I was a teenager.、Uh, that you, if you have a writer's block, the one way to get rid of it is never sit down to write until you know what you're going to write before you sit down. Just resist that urge to write prematurely, because that's what causes writer block. Is you start writing and suddenly the page is blank. Even if you were able to write a few paragraphs or sentences or even pages, sooner or later, if you don't know what you're going to write, the page ends up being blank and you end up being、uh, blocked.、Uh, but if you figure it all out、uh, before you write write it down, if you force yourself to do that by refusing to write, you know, like I, I woke up last night with three songs in my mind because I'm working on a on a screenplay. I'm in a script right now for a Broadway show. And、uh, and I haven't written anything、uh, until this morning, and it's been a month that I've been thinking about it. And it, suddenly this morning, my brain starts handing me all this stuff that has been percolating back there. So I couldn't wait to get out of bed at a quarter to four and just jot, start jotting stuff down. And now I have like ten pages of you know thoughts, outlines, scenes, dialogue,、uh, and if that. Dries up. I'll just stop writing again until more of it is ready to pour out. Because you know, when you think about it, your conscious mind is a very small proportion of your mind,、uh, and, and it's not responsible for a whole lot of stuff. And I don't know if you've ever driven on a long trip and then something that you do over and over again, like commute, and realize that you got home tonight and you don't even remember what route you took. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah. You know, what does that tell you? It tells you that your conscious mind was not involved in that trip.、Uh, you know, or if you had to explain somebody how to tie your shoe, if you're old enough to have sh- shoes that tie, you know, your tennis shoes, right?、Uh, your conscious mind would not do a very good job of explaining that. You know, first you put your Your finger on the left side of the lace, and you pull it over with your right. 
forget it. You know, <laughs> you just sit there and tie your shoe. Mm. And uh, so the conscious mind needs to be a lot of the time, like if you're playing tennis or basketball, the, the secret of the great athletes is to get your conscious mind out of the way because it gets in the way. Uh, and whatever the rest of that mind is that makes the three-pointer or, you know, m- makes the amazing serve has got very little to do with your conscious mind who f- half the time is on Jupiter or, you know, down the street having a beer or, you know, whatever. So it's uh, in my first book about writing called A Writer's Time. I talk about this process of the creative process, all the steps of it, realize it's I went, I went through a period when I was a professor and studied the creative process and, and not just literature, but in every art and music and in science uh, and discovered that it all has a pattern. It's, you know, it, it all has steps that are very understandable once you recognize it. And then I realized that there are two kinds of productive, creative people. The ones who are not productive, you know, I don't worry about them too much. I just want to help them become productive. But the ones that are productive fascinated me because there were two kinds of them. Ones that were happy and and productive and ones that were not happy. In fact, were depressed and productive. And often the unhappy ones ended up committing suicide. Uh, Virginia Woolf, I mean, Hemingway, there's a whole long list of people, artists, who, and the reason they, they couldn't handle it is because they never bothered to figure out their process and understand it. You know, Virginia Woolf felt abandoned when she finished a book and went through what I call in one of my books, postpartum depression, you know, the same thing that women go through after they give birth. And uh, it's easily solved if you, if you understand that, that is part of the process. And the way you solve it is that before you do that last 20% of the project that you now see the end of, you stop and you start the project that's percolating in the back of your head. You start putting that down because the act of doing that starts exciting you about the new project. And then you have an incentive to come back and finish the old project, right, so that you don't feel any depression afterwards because you can't wait to jump into the new project. So these are the kinds of things that I've been studying all my life is how the creative mind works, what I call the type C personality. And, um, you know, Salvador Dali, one of the great creative artists of the 20th, 20th century, said something I never forgot. He said, the difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. You know, this is what Shakespeare meant by method in your madness. You know, this is the kind of creative people who have a method to it. And then the ones who don't, who just have to wait for inspiration to strike. And and I always say, if you're going to wait for your muse, you're going to be waiting for a long time. But if you lock yourself in your closet every day for the hour or two that you're writing, then the muse will be slavering at the keyhole, you know, trying to beat the door down uh, because she appreciates discipline. And if you've got enough discipline to write with or without her, she doesn't want to be left out. So she'll she'll jump in and give you, you know, what she can contribute to it. But you need to become your own muse if you're a creative person in the professional world and, you know, write at any time in any place with any medium available to you. Mm-hmm. 
That's a lot of uh, great advice uh, in there for a lot of different things, even for this podcast. Uh, you know, instead of sitting down and trying to force out an idea for this podcast, I think Ben and I had some inspiration uh, before we got started. And uh, and just like you were describing, we're kind of thinking of what the next step is going to be uh, within this podcast to continue to grow it. And uh, and I think uh, and I really like what you said about stories as well because I think that's one of the main benefits that we've come across with this podcast is that we're getting to know the stories of so many different people, and that was actually a big inspiration for wanting to start it. Uh, the people that we were meeting in Japan, like everybody we came across, uh, not just Japanese people, but people from different countries, everybody had such an interesting story, and uh, we really wanted to, you know, create the. Uh, the venue for people to be able to share that, uh, the medium for people to be able to share those ideas and where they came from, uh, from everyday people to, uh, to, you know, people that we could meet in, uh, you know, living in other countries still right now. Um, yeah. Blog- <clears throat> Blogcasts are incredibly powerful. I mean, they're, what they're really like is back in the t- days of the oral tradition where there was no writing and stories were told by bards who, went from village to village and got people the latest song, told them the latest stories, etc. They were sitting around a fireside when that happened. And uh, the internet has become a universal fireside. We can all be sitting around the same fireside. I was on a, on a uh, Zoom conference yesterday about the condition of Lebanon after the blast. And there were 435 people on that. It's incredibly moving stories. And, could never have done, been done without the internet. Um, you know, it's it's an amazing gift. And COVID has ac- actually intensified the power of that because it's taught us all how to use Zoom. Yeah. Um, we're all, we're without, all becoming, Zoom, without Zoom, we wouldn't be speaking to you as well, Ken. Yeah. Right. And we're all, we all become uh, quite adept at it in a few short months when you think about it. Uh, I mean, even grandparents like myself – you know, getting to meet his new grandson a couple of weeks ago uh, on Zoom or celebrating Thanksgiving with my extended family with 23 people on, you know, on the same Zoom call. And they're all living in different parts of the country. And that's just an amazing new communication. It's it's more revolutionary than the printing press. Um, it's equally revolutionary as the move from the oral tradition to the written tradition. Uh, and it's it's probably the ultimate revolution in communication. You know, the, there's even a, a prediction that was made by a Jesuit philosopher named <clears throat> Teilhard de Chardin. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man back in 1917. And he predicted that within the, the century, that, that century, that we would, mankind would achieve the ability to be in all places at once, to speak in all places, especially when Google Translate came along, right? And to therefore have all knowledge at its disposal at all times. And when you think about omniscience, omnipresence, and uh, what's the other one? Omnipotence, all power, because knowledge is power. Those are the definitions that people define God as. So mankind is evolving into its image of God, which after all was God created supposedly humans in his image or her image. And now 
we're we're getting close to that by being able to universally communicate. Like it's just amazing that you, you guys are in Japan, I'm in LA, and we could have somebody in London, or you know, I have clients in Israel, Lebanon, London, Spain, France, uh, many other countries, Sing- Singapore, uh, you know, Japan, China, and the internet is the reason for all this. Ken, I wanted to get into kind of your uh, your your experiences with uh, with Japan. Um, do you remember the f- the first time you came here, and what was your first impression like of when you came to Japan? Well, I married a uh, I married a Japanese woman. You know, she's my, my wife Kayoko is from Tokyo, um, and so I guess you know I met her and got to know and love her, and a lot part of her is Japanese. <laughs> And uh, a lot of strange things attracted me to her culture, which I was raised Roman Catholic, and many of my best friends are Jewish, and uh, I have a huge Jewish kind of creative family. And uh, Japanese culture is very similar to Jewish culture. It's it's a culture of, kind of a culture of guilt, uh, you know, and has many of the same concerns much of the same seriousness. Um, and so I was always impressed by qualities, you know, like reliability, responsibility, meaning that you always respond to something that's done for you to the point, you know, of craziness. I mean, I, when I went to Japan the first time we went to a, uh, they dragged me to a, a no concert. Uh, and I, you know, I was off the plane, literally, 12 hours before the concert began. So I had massive jet lag. And the concert, you know, I told on the way, lasts about six hours. You know? <laughs> but what's funny is that we sat there in the back of the theater with my in-laws and my wife. And poor Kayoko, every time there was any kind of a break, she had to walk all over the audience giving envelopes to people. Or, or other omiyake, other, you know, presents. And uh, then she would always come back with envelopes. And she spent the whole performance, you know, reciprocating or getting reciprocated too. And then they explained the whole gift system in Japan where you, when you get a gift, you give back a gift. And this goes on forever. And I was particularly blown away when I heard that, that the postman delivers cash presents you know, in the mail, and in these envelopes that I've seen that have a string that ties them up, so that that's how they're sealed. They're not, they're not licked shut or taped shut. They're just there. You go, and and it's clearly a cash envelope, and yet millions and millions of yen go back and forth every hour in Japan. Nobody would think of stealing that. There is other kinds of theft I've seen grow in, in Japan in the last. 15, 20 years, but not that. Um, and, and just this whole issue of reciprocity as a connection society and and uh, the politeness, the courtesy. I remember at Takashi Maya department store about 10 years ago, last time I saw it, you, you go in the store and you're heading for the escalator and there's a, there's a woman wearing a gorgeous uniform, you know, and a beret and she's holding it in tongs 
these little, what we call antimacassars, these little white doilies hmm. that she puts on the escalator so you don't touch the actual rubber. And at the top, another woman takes your, your little doily and discards it. And I go, unbelievable, just unbelievable. And I've learned in the, in the years after that that this, how deep does that go is another question entirely. Um, right. You know, like the word sumimasen, for example, which you hear, you know, 800 times a day normally. Uh, does anybody really mean I'm sorry when they say <laughs> that? <laughs> you know, and, and Kyoko points out, we don't need to mean it. We say it because it accomplishes its purpose, whether you mean it or not. But, you know, to an American, it's like, don't say you're sorry unless you really are sorry. <laughs> well, that wouldn't work in Japan because you need to say you're sorry all the time, especially when you're not. Mm. I mean, it's a way of diffusing the situation, right? By saying sumimasen, even though it wasn't your fault, but it's like a lightning rod. You're taking the whole issue of fault off of off the table by saying that. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. It just, being able to maintain the the overall peace in society is sometimes the most important thing. Uh, always going to great lengths, even if it's not uh, what maybe Westerners would consider sincere. And uh, the thing you mentioned about uh, the shopping center, one thing, you know, I've been in Japan now for 18 years. My mother is Japanese. Um, but one thing that still impresses me uh, whenever I go to the shopping uh, center or the shopping mall is that when the uh, the stores close, at 8 p.m. or at 10 p.m. or whatever, in a, specifically in like a large department store, all the staff, yeah, uh, or like Daimaru or some of the big chains that they have in Japan, all the staff will come to the escalator as people are descending down the escalator and they'll bow, yeah, yeah to people as they're going down. <laughs> yeah, and that still that still blows me away. And you know, are they 100% sincere or are they just waiting to finish their job and get home and stuff? Perhaps what I, what I love is when the bullet train comes into Shinjuku or any other station, you know, before you get on, you're all standing in these perfect lines that are marked, right? Before you get on, the this whole cleaning crew comes up. And they all bow to you, and then they go on the, on the train, and within like five minutes, they clean the entire train, and then they come back and bow again as they leave. And, and when the conductor comes th through the train, he bows when he enters the car, and he turns and bows when he leaves the car. And, and there's something very nice about it from a foreigner's point of view, but, um, and I suppose it's a primary social control system in Japan. But I'm afraid that the repression that it causes is what leads a lot of, I think, contemporary Japanese to be in a kind of despair um, of unfulfillment and inability to express themselves truly, especially because television sometimes shows them <laughs> what the rest of the world is like. God forbid America, which is the most, you know, uncourteous place in the world. Maybe Australia beats us, but not by much. <laughs> well, a, a lot of um, yeah, a lot of Japanese people kind of say the same thing. Like I, I teach English, and a lot of my students they say they love speaking English because when they speak that language, it allows them to truly express their their feelings and how they really feel about their opinions. Whereas in Japanese, they have to hold back a lot of what they truly mean and what, how they're feeling. So um, yeah, when it comes to English. I think that that's a good outlet for them. 
So I, I, I was wondering, your, your wife, she, so she lives in America now. Um, has she changed a lot from living in America to when she grew up in Japan in terms oh, yeah. of her way I, of thinking? Japan um, prepared her for, you know, I always say she has three primary values. She, I guess, not in any order. But the number one is to share, to share things. Like we never go anywhere new without her being able to be saying, gosh, I wish my, my father could be here. Or I wish my I wish Yoshi and Izumi could could be here. I can't wait to bring your family, you know, here. That's her huge instinct to share things. And, and another one is to be grateful. She is the most grateful person I've ever run into. And it's made me shockingly aware in the last 20 years of how little apart gratitude plays in America. I mean, we have Thanksgiving Day, which, of course, now has changed its name to Native American Remembrance Day. But even when it didn't change its name, not a lot of real gratitude was going on. It was not a normal value. Whereas in Japan, there is gratitude, even if a lot of it is kind of ritual gratitude, it's still nice to see it. Uh, and, 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 and her, it's become more and more real. I mean, she's the reason that, that I have that backdrop because she wakes me up if I'm not up by sunrise. She makes sure, if I am up, either way, she makes sure I come into the window that has the best view to, to see it because she's so grateful for it. I mean, we go for a walk and she's grateful for the blue sky. She's unbelievably grateful. And her third big value is challenging. And that she developed, I think, because she was a rotary student for a year in Australia mm. when she was in high school. And uh, Australia is like America, you know, you challenge whatever you want to challenge. So it's kind of, it kind of liberated her from the Japanese um, compliance, you know, the, the obeisance to a higher good. I'm going to never forget the time I, my mother-in-law almost slapped me on a train, you know, on a metro train in Tokyo because I had my legs crossed. And she, she kept giving me these horrible looks from across the aisle. And Kayoko finally said, would you please uncross your legs? It's extremely rude, you know. And I, I asked her later, like, why is that rude? You know, who doesn't cross their legs in this country, right? And she said, it takes up more space than you need to take up. And it's arrogant and rude. And, you know, it's, it blows my mind. And she's become much more... A challenger, uh, and she in fact started her own company. And thirteen years later, it's thriving in sixty-five countries of the world because she just she sets. She's determined, and she challenges things, and she gets them done. And she's the in, in the, the community we live in. She's the one people go to when they're complaining about anything because she she will get it fixed. <laughs> and nobody wants to deal with her when she's on you know the warpath. They know. They know that she'll never give up. Yeah, she you know. sounds like a, a really impressive. She reminds me of my mom in a lot of ways. Who's now been in the U.S. for uh, I think over forty years, but she's changed quite a bit. And uh, and we, we did find some stuff about your wife as well, and and uh, her career as a documentarian and producer at uh, NHK. And it's all interesting stuff that we're actually hoping maybe if she's you know game for it to to come on the podcast uh, to share some of her experiences both in Japan and 
and uh, after having moved to the U.S. and the differences. And uh, I myself actually switched careers recently uh, into media, and uh, we work with uh, some of those companies like NHK and uh, some of the other big networks in Japan. So she'd definitely be somebody that we'd be interested to speak with um, if she's available. Yeah, um, I'm sure she'd love to do it because she's anytime she can get a platform to talk about her company, which is called Yoga Gives Back. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, that in fact, when she started the company, everybody in Japan, all of her friends and family thought she was nuts because the whole premise of it is to give back to India, to the underserved women and children of India in gratitude for the gift of yoga. And uh, nobody got it. Her own brother said, you know, it, it is written in stone that you, ch you that you extend your charity to the people within two kilometers of you, you know, whatever kilometers he, he talked about. And, and, and that's it. Like, why are you trying to help India? Who cares? Right. And she gets that response from people here, but Japan, nobody wanted to hear about it. Nobody wanted to help even her father, even though he was sort of proud of her. He didn't understand why he would be proud of that. But 10 years later, Japan is one of the strongest countries in her group. She's got some of the strongest leaders there. Her, her father gives money regularly. Her brother hasn't come around yet, but I'm sure she'd love to talk about the whole cultural thing about it. And she's working on her book this year, finally. So this is, uh, you know, send me an email inviting her and I'll forward it to her and hook you up with her. That'd be great. And she, her she website is yogagivesback.org. Okay. Uh, and I'm chairman of that company too, so I... I'm putting in my two cents for it. <laughs> and you guys have had some, I think, some support from people in the in industry like Alanis Morissette and even David Lynch as well. And yeah, some other people. exactly. Yeah, yeah, we've and, had amazing people. So there's a and, lot of uh, yogis out there. Um, my <laughs> my my wife is actually really into yoga too. So she does. Uh, yeah, every morning she's out in the living room stretching. She tried to get me involved. Um, I gave it a little, you know, some tries, but yoga is a very very tough. Uh, I, don't know, I, I wouldn't call it a sport, but uh, uh, it's very difficult to do. Um, yeah. And I, w I want to do it more definitely because I, I can see the benefits of it. Um, yeah, just health wise yeah. and keeping those muscles relaxed. Right. What nationality are you, Ben? Uh, I'm I'm English, but my family are from uh, Hong Kong. Oh, okay. Yeah, my parents and my wife's Japanese too. Hong Kong is one of our strongest countries. We were there twice at the international, I think it's called the Asian Yoga Conference. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I'm so sorry about what's going on in Hong Kong right now. It's yeah, yeah, it's a bad situation. Pretty much, I, I have a lot of cousins and stuff there. They're still there because they're kind of young, but they don't see themselves being there long term. Um, they're planning to like go back to the UK at some point. Too bad. Mm, yeah, and, terrible yeah. situation. Your uh, your wife as well, and uh, and her family were, I guess, a big part of the inspiration or reason that you wanted to uh, put together this book, Japanese in law, which is uh, quite a. I mean, you were mentioning before all the uh, books that you've published in the past, and obviously a very prolific writer. Maybe even going back to your days at Yale when your PhD dissertation on the Iliad uh, won the John Addison. Uh, Porter Prize, which is for the best work of scholarship in any field, if I understand correct. Um, but again, yeah. like 
this uh, Japanese study book seemed to be quite a departure uh, from uh, the stuff that you had done in the past. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your inspiration and reason uh, for wanting to uh, write a book like that? Well, yeah, I'd love to talk a bit of, about it. My I, I, languages are my passion. I I started reading Homeric Greek in high school. Actually, I started I started Latin when I was in sixth grade because the Jesuit priest used to come to the house every day and give me a private tutorial. Uh, so then I went to high school and took four more years of Latin. Then I went to Georgetown and took four more years at Georgetown. And uh, then I, I started Greek in high school for four years and then four more years in college. And I started uh, French in high school. And then I took Spanish and French and German when I went to Yale graduate school and uh, also Provencal. And I started Russian, but gave it up after I go another alphabet I don't need. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I love languages and I always had a reason. I, I took sp Spanish so I could read Cervantes, Don Quixote. And I, I learned Italian, which is my seventh language and my favorite one, probably of all. So I could read Dante in Italian, et cetera, you know, from Homer and Greek and onwards. And, um, and so it really annoyed me that I was hopeless in Japanese. I didn't know any Japanese uh, when I met her. And during the 20 years, you know, they, one thing, I, you, if you, the more you listen to Japanese, the more you realize that very little is actually said. Uh, most of what is uttered is, you know, polite words, filler words, you know, so, uh, so, onto, montini, you like on and on and on. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, huh, and I started figuring out what people were talking about, even though if I didn't know what they said, just by filtering out all the words that were just said over and over again, meaningless. Like, there's this famous scene in, uh, what's that? Lost in Translation, you know that movie? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> great movie. Scarlett Johansson. Huh? That's a great yeah. movie. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, and there's a scene where the director has given an instruction in Japanese, <laughs> right. and, and the translator, you know, translates it, and, and then the actor, go, it takes her, takes her two minutes, not, not even two minutes, it takes her one minute to translate the eight-minute instructions <laughs> in the Japanese. He, she says, Move to your left. And the guy goes, that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> what took him so long? So w once you started to figure that out, then it wasn't completely challenging. And I thought, you know, I have no interest in finding out where the bus terminal is or the usual things that are in tourist books uh, because I don't have to deal with that. When I go to Japan, I either have my own translator, Kyoko, with me or I'm staying in their house. And when they come here, you know, same thing. So I just started paying attention to things of, you know, Oyasumi Nasai at the end of the day. And, you know, uh, Ohio gozaimasu at the beginning and, and how to get through a meal, itotakimasu, and all the things that, that are just normal family things to say. Uh, and as your father got older, learned a bunch of medical things that you need to ask him because one thing I learned is you ask a Japanese person how he feels and he is going to lie to you. I mean, there is probably no word for lying in Japan, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, there is one, Utsaki or something like that. Usotsuki. Uso. Usotsuki, yeah. yeah. Her mother always said that because we, I forced them to learn liar's dice, which she loved. 
And so she loved yelling out, Utsatsuki, because that's what you do when you're calling somebody. You don't believe they're 13 sixes, you know, you go, Utsatsuki. And, but uh, all I wanted to do was learn how to get through a day. And, uh, and her father, who speaks some English, also wanted to be able to communicate more, especially when he started spending half the year with us, which he did the last five years. And uh, so we decided to put together kind of a, a family-friendly manual, not a scholar's manual, uh, you know, not for academics, and really not for tourists, but for people who are related to Japanese and don't want to be, you know, completely left out. And uh, we had it read by five or six people who deal in both languages, like a, a journalist friend of ours who's a brilliant journalist who only writes Japanese, but who lives here and she writes about Japanese, uh, about Hollywood uh, in Japan. So she, you know, she went through it for us and a few other people. And we know it's got um, contradictory things in it and some strange things. Like the hardest part for me was starting to realize that uh, the, 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 the Romanji, you know, the Romanization of things so that the English person can read them um, is because you know, I would get one thing from Keisako, my father-in-law, another thing from Yoshi, and another thing from Kayoko. And I, I finally said to Kayoko, I don't get it. You guys are all, he's saying it's spelled this way, you're saying it's spelled this way. And it turns out that there is no complete agreement on how it, it's a matter, what does it sound like to you? And that ends up being varied from Osaka to Tokyo, Nagano to Sapporo, right? So mm -hmm. just did the best we could and hoped that it would help people. And um, we're going to, We'll revise the book every six months as people report, you know, things that we should add. We've already got a whole list of things to add, mostly medical stuff, you know, <laughs> diagnostic. How do you feel this morning? I feel fine. No, no, tell the truth. How do you really feel? I feel fine. You know, <laughs> but you have to say it six times before he'll give you the, so how many times did you get up last night? Uh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> no, how many times? And, and you know, he says, twice but he really means six times and uh, all that kind of stuff yeah. but uh, I just thought it would be useful and I you know feedback we're getting from people who are trying to use it for family is that it's very useful that way and the food stuff just like I, I love food how I learned Italian on my own was I was a Fulbright professor in Italy and the year before I had a fellowship in Florence and I, I didn't know as much Italian. I'd studied it at Yale, but I didn't have as much as I'd like. So I, I went every morning to the market and I walked around from stall to stall asking, you know, the vendor, what do you call those green vegetables there? And he would tell me the word for, you know, cetrioli, you know, cucumbers. And I, I till I knew all the food and then I knew all the drinks and I took the same approach to this as to try to, you know, what interests people the most is eating, drinking, sleeping, uh, you know, and and being polite if you're Japanese. So, Ken, you said you speak, what, seven languages, is it? Seven or eight languages? I, yeah, I studied seven. I can read them, and I speak Italian pretty well. I speak French, Spanish, but I'm not uh, as verbal in other languages. So I just know how to read them. How would you say um, Japanese compares to learning those languages? Is it a lot more difficult or easier, have you found? 
Well, most of the languages I know are ro what are called Romance languages, right? They're, and they're therefore very similar in structure. Um, you know, when, right, when Kayoko studied in Brazil for a couple of years when she was growing up, like she was in college, I think, in high school. <clears throat> so she speaks Portuguese. So when we go to Italy, which we do often, she just speaks Portuguese to the people at the coffee, you know, at the bar, coffee bars and restaurants. And mostly they get it because it's a romance language and she definitely can understand the Italian. And, uh, you know, it's the same way in France and, and Spain. You can sort of understand them. But Japanese was such a different language that it, it intimidated me at first. Uh, but when I realized I didn't have to read the characters um, at all, and that really bothers me. I really wish I could read the signs and all that stuff. And uh, especially because when we go to Najima, our Japanese grocery store here in L.A., huge store, I can't read anything because they don't bother putting any English on anything, just all Japanese, which I don't blame them for, right? But, you know, if, if you guys were more commercially oriented when it came to Gaijin, you would at least put an English word just to let you know this is soap, you know? <laughs> like, I, I, one of the funny things is using their elaborate bathroom at their Tokyo house, you know, which has, looks like you're walking into a palace because there are all these gizmos and the deep tub with its speaking tells you your, your bath is almost ready. Your bath is now ready. 39 degrees, whatever it's saying, you know, <laughs> when you go in there, you realize that you, I couldn't even figure out which of these was soap and which one was facial, this or that, you know, because nothing in English, all Japanese. <laughs> So it was challenging, and at first it was just intimidating, uh, like, you know, reading Russian would be, uh, even though I can do that now, too, because I, I, can, I knew enough of the alphabet to sound things out. But with Japan, when I, when I realized that there was an English, you know, a Roman, a Roman transcript, um, but it's, you know, I've learned a lot about the structure of the language. It's so much different and so much simpler and the Japanese are much more uh, less needy grammatically. Like, you don't need to know much grammar to com to make yourself understood in Japan because uh, you know there are there are things like the past tense and and uh, of course the past tense, but there are subjunctives and things like that. But nobody who's just beginning learning Japanese needs to know them. And uh, what I love is not having to. You you don't have to say watashi wa natashi you, know, you you just you say the verb and from the context people understand what you're referring to and mm -hmm. once i realized that and got my book of 5000 japanese verbs and things like that <laughs> um, it was interesting to me the most interesting thing about it is the different ways for saying the same thing mm -hmm. uh, but also so many things don't have a lot of different ways to say them like Oishi is a word that I, because I'm a gourmand, you know, and I, I use that word like 30 times a day, but there aren't a lot of variations on it. You can say, you know, something is parashi and things like that, but in English, we have a lot of different words for that. In Italian, there's 10 words for it, but the Japanese are pretty simple when it comes to things like either tastes good or not good. I just say, when my father-in-law, we ask him how it was, you know, the hell was the meal that I slaved over for two hours and he goes so so <laughs> you know he he basically says 
you know, ma ma, which, <laughs> which, which, which Kyoko finally admitted means so so. And I, so I knew that ma ma is like saying it sucks, you know, <laughs> but you would never say anything. There's no way to say that in Japanese, right? You know, crazy. You talked about it a little bit uh, that, uh, you know, in terms of the pronunciation, um, you know, there's not uh, Japanese characters in your book, but there is the Romaji uh, writing. But then there's also, uh, and something that's pretty unique about uh, your book is that there's the a guide on pronunciation for all the sentences. And, um, uh, and I think you even said that uh, that was for the gaijin ear, I guess, or how foreigners would hear it. Um, so does that mean that uh, you were kind of listening to these Japanese sentences and suggesting the pronunciation, or that was also something that you were working with the native Japanese speakers on and trying to figure out maybe what was best to put into the book? Well, that's a good question because it was one of the hardest parts of it. I was, <clears throat> I first of all tried to transcribe what I was hearing in a way that non-specialists could understand. You know, like I realized, for example, that putting down the word, you know, the, the, the word go in Japanese, it made more sense to put an H at the end of it because it's not really go, you know, it, it's like go. Hmm. It's, you know what I mean? So I did that first, and then I started realizing that when Kaiso, Kaisaku went through and, che and, and checked it, he often corrected what I was, what I put down. And what I put down was stuff that I'd already had Kyoko check after I put it down, and she would help me get it, what she thought was straight. But he had a whole different view of, of how the same words were pronounced. And then, of course, I, I learned that the generational split, that younger people don't speak the same way that older people do. We had this, this journalist friend I mentioned. She just said, you know, she went through and struck out about, 20% of all the words go, nobody uses those, those <laughs> words anymore. You just don't use them. And most of the replacement words are, are more or less English. You know, mm -hmm. like there's different mm -hmm. words for cake, but cakey is more used than anything else now. But right. he doesn't right. think so. He, he thinks that, you know, the old words are the right words. So we had to kind of deliberate on that on almost every word in the book. And, uh, and then we would have somebody else check that, both the journalist and this businesswoman who's bilingual in Japanese and English. <laughs> we, we would have them check it. And they were, it's interesting enough that people who use both languages every day were less critical than people who, you know, teach Japanese, for example, or teach English. And right. we've right. gotten some good feedback from those people too, but they're more critical. But that's, because, and I recognize this as a former academic, because there's kind of an academic um, attitude toward it, you know, that, and, and I had to get over the idea of being able to precisely put anything down, because I, I tried to make that clear in the preface that this isn't dogmatic, it's, it's just how, you know, how I hear these words, um, and I haven't gotten much criticism back on the pronunciation of a certain word, although I debated at the very end, I went through and made a lot of changes because <clears throat> like Kazu, you know, that word for numbers, I was spelling it phonetically Z-O-O. -O, and again, I added an H at the end because it wasn't 
really the same as the English word ooh, or the English sound ooh. It was, and it wasn't you, which, which I had started transcribing it as. It wasn't really you either. You, you to the English ear, is like you with the, you know, it's like Y-E-W. Hmm. But that's not really, a, you don't say that for kazoo. It's not kazoo. Hmm. You know, it's kazoo, right? So <clears throat> yeah. it was a judgment call. And um, I'm not a linguist. So even though I, you know, linguist is a much more precise person than I am. I'm just a communicator. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that uh, that you talk about all this because I think uh, what's important uh, when I was looking at the book is that it's a it's a book about communication. It's not a textbook on the Japanese language. It's uh, definitely not uh, what you're going to see in a traditional uh, Japanese textbook for studying Japanese, but it's going to be something that's going to help you uh, communicate with people, just like you were saying on a daily basis and it's set up in a good structure so it kind of goes from morning to evening and everything uh, throughout the that might come up throughout the day and uh, as i was reading through it, it it reminded me of something and i couldn't put my finger on it but it finally i realized what it was is it reminded me of going to karaoke with uh with uh, japanese people in japan because um, when you go to karaoke and they sing english songs on the uh, karaoke screen uh, for the song, they will have above all the English words the katakana pronunciation of the words. And, uh, you know, people will say, hey, that's not exactly how, uh, it's, it doesn't match exactly accurately with how a native speaker would say this word. But the point is, is that these people are singing these songs, non-native speakers are singing these songs, and everybody can understand their singing, even if it might not be 100% sounding like a native speaker. And it, you know, enables everybody to have a, a good time out at the karaoke bar and everything. And I think that was, uh, that was what really struck me as being important about your book, is that it, hey, it helps people communicate and uh, find out things about each other, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, it was meant to be, it was not meant for sophisticated uh, travelers or for scholars, for sure. It was just meant for people who have, who wish they could communicate with their Japanese families or friends um, in, in, in ways that are manageable and restricted enough not to be intimidating. You know, like breakfast, lunch, dinner. Okay, we, we, all, we all get that. Uh, leaving the house to do what? You know, how many things can you leave the house to do? Take a walk, go shopping, you know, get gas, whatever. Uh, that's where, at least in the days before COVID. But, um, but I tried to restrict it to those things. And, you know, there's, I, I forget if we put in the health chapter, but we're expanding the health chapter further. Uh, and, There'll be some other things. I mean, another thing I think about Jap Japanese people are never seen anybody be more fascinated and and curious about weather. I mean, my wife <laughs> checks the forecast 12 times a day, and she'll tell me with absolute certitude, it's going to rain tomorrow at 3. And I've lived in L.A., you know, for 30 years, and I go, no, it's not. <laughs> she goes, the forecast, I go, the forecast is full of shit. <laughs> It's not going to rain tomorrow, you know, because it, it never rains in California. Yes, it rains once in a while, but she's from Tokyo where it rains every other day or sometimes 30 days in a row, you know. So and her father's the same way. He checks the forecast even when it's a perfect 75 degrees 
you know, before he goes out for a walk and checks it again when he comes back in and says, that you know, they describe the weather in great detail. And uh, it's kind of funny in L.A. to have anybody talk about the weather. But I can, you know, from having spent enough time in Tokyo, I can see weather is a huge issue for Japanese. And, and the whole islands are all such different weather. I mean, blizzards up where you guys are and, um, you know, very warm down near Okinawa, right? Mm. So uh, weather is another chapter that we had to insist on putting in. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think the weather's, um, like being British as well, we love talking about the weather because in England yeah. it rains a lot, you know, it's windy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of quite used to talking to Japanese people about <laughs> the weather. So similar with me, every time I meet a Japanese friend or a co-worker, the first thing we talk about, yeah, is the weather for about a minute or so. And because yeah. like Sapporo or Hokkaido where we live, the weather's so interchangeable, you know, it can snow one day, be sunny the next, rain the next. So, yes, yeah, so it's yeah. definitely an important uh, issue to have in the book, I think, for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. But any any suggestions you guys have or mistakes you find, I'd be most grateful if you'd send me an email, you know, okay. because I that's the way yeah, I publish books for a living. One of the thing, one of my companies is a publishing company. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we typically revise books every six months because we want them to be as accurate as they can be, but you're always going to have typos and errors in books. And we just live with that fact. We warn everybody beforehand and we just pull it down and it takes 24 hours to, you know, to revise it. We just send it to our designer. Once the design is finished, she pops it up, takes the other one down, pops this one up. And So where, uh, where can people find your, your book, Ken? The easiest place to get it, including in Japan, is, is Amazon. You know, Amazon.jp has is, is got it. And um, it's, you can get it as a print book or, a, you know, or an e-book. Mm. And that's Japanese in-law words and phrases for the day-to-day living. Yep, that's, by, that's the one. Yeah, Ken, and, and it's co-written by your father-in-law too, right? You know, he's, he's 86 or 87. Wow. So it occurred to me five years ago that he needed a project. <laughs> so I, he has gone through this 30 times. He, he was a former bank manager. So you give him something detailed to do and he will... And the sad thing is he delivers the entire manuscript back to me in 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he goes through every line. And uh, then my wife checks it over and then I, I fix it according to what she said because I want it to be contemporary. Then on the next draft he gets, he changes all the same things <laughs> over and over again. But he really worked his head on, you know, off of it because he, he really wanted to communicate. And we, at, by the end of... Uh, I know we've known each other for 15, 20 years. You know, by the first 10 years, we were able to start using Japanese. I could say, you know, food things and most health things. His health was ups and downs. And so I learned stuff that, you know, most people don't have to learn. But in families, you learn you learn all these things that you don't use with anybody else. And I thought that was the most intimate way to me that's always the way to learn a language is when you're learning the kind of the the everyday shortcuts
It's been uh, such a pleasure to have you on. I mean, a person with your perspective, uh, traveling to so many different countries, and then hearing uh, also uh, what you think about Japan and Japanese culture uh, through your own experiences, through your wife and her families and everything. It's been really fascinating. Maybe there'll be another opportunity to uh, sit down and speak with you about all sorts of different stuff if, uh, sure. if you still have the time at another, at another date and stuff. I'm happy to do that on the creative process or on films and Hollywood. Uh, the one we're doing now, we're going to shoot in Hungary, and that's going to be a whole new experience for me because I don't know any Hungarian. And um, so it's language is a whole different subject because it's it's amazing that the human race has, I think, it's 3,400 languages, and uh, only 650 of them are spoken by more than a couple of thousand people. But um, that's still a huge number. And I go to India once in a while with her, and India has about four major languages and hundreds of, you know, minor languages. And how they understand each other is just amazing. But they do. People do. Mm. Um, and I, the one thing you learn with people from another culture is you can live with them and communicate without necessarily knowing more than a few words of their language. Uh, and that's the beauty. Humans, you can't stop humans from communicating. They'll find a way. Uh, they'll find a way. Yeah, Ken, thanks so, a lot for coming on the show. Um, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, hope, I'm sure the listeners would have learned a lot as well, especially with the, the tips and advice that you gave about writing. I think that will help a lot of people. Thank you very much. And they can, they can see more about my companies at storymerchant.com. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me. And it's great to meet you and look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Ken. Let me know if you want us, Kyoko, to come on, too. Yeah, that'd be great. For sure. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by the Red House in Rizutsu. Located in the heart of Rizutsu Ski Resort, just across the main road, and it's behind the Seiko Mart convenience store. The restaurant features a mix of Japanese, Asian fusion, and Western-style dishes, including shabu-shabu and wagyu beef, and Hokkaido wagyu beef steak. Open winter and summer, 12 to 3 for lunch, 5 to 9 for dinner, with prices ranging from under 1,000 yen to about 5,000 yen. Uh, Go and check out the great food at the Red House in Rizutsu. Check out the website for more information, theredhouse.jp.